when people die now in, in life, if you don't have an awareness of mortality and you don't think about death at all, then when someone close to you dies, you not only have to deal with the loss of that person, but you also have to deal with the extreme shock that comes. And that, oh my gosh, that makes it so much exponentially more difficult to deal with death. Because before you even get to the grief or get to the part where you miss the person, you're reeling. Your whole world is turned upside down because it never crossed your mind. And that's actually a passive voice. You never allowed it to cross your mind or invited the idea that that person could die into your mind. And so you have to process a whole lot of shock and non-understanding of mortality before you can even get to grieving. Hey there folks, welcome to the Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price and I'm the host. And if you're listening to this on audio, just know that now you're gonna have a video option as well because the Sacred Speaks is also moving to YouTube. So if you would, jump on over to YouTube, search the Sacred Speaks and subscribe to the channel. It's just starting out and your subscriptions will help it get a designated name. And that would be much appreciated. If you're on audio, welcome. This is a conversation today with a woman named Kate Manser, and she wrote a book called You Might Die Tomorrow, So Live Today, Face, the, face Your Fear of Death to Live Your Most Meaningful Life. Uh, Kate is fantastic. She's a good liaison, certainly for uh, the, uh, the, the erudite intellectualism that really needs to go out there and experience life. Kate had a couple of terrifying and traumatic losses in her life that after a series of events brought about the reality that she too is going to die. And this is not a macabre conversation. It's one that actually opens us up because being more aware of our mortality brings our sense of aliveness and vitality to the foreground. And we make different choices. And Kate is a fantastic ambassador of this message. Let me read her bio. Kate Manser is the creator of You Might Die Tomorrow, a radical movement to inspire people to really live life before they die. Kate's work as an artist, author, and speaker has touched millions of people around the world, inspire, inspiring people like you to embrace death, create meaning, and live for the joy of being alive today. Her new book, also titled You Might Die Tomorrow, was lauded by New York Times bestselling author Brad Montague. She's been a speaker at Facebook headquarters. She's appeared in Oprah Magazine and all kinds of other things like that. Most of all, Kate's just happy to be alive. So check her out at Kate's site. Go to www.youmightdietomorrow.com. And in the resource page down below, you will find also not only a link to her site, but also a link to what she calls the deathbed meditation. I highly recommend it. It's about 20 minutes and... Um, either you know after this conversation before or at any point uh, do it it's a good one 
Um, we also talk about Bonnie Ware's Regrets of Dying, a book that she wrote. Check her website out at bonnieware.com. And also, uh, oh yes, the, uh, the Sacred Speaks is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. I'm a co-founder and co-owner of the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences along with my wife. And we have been also doing a YouTube channel. There's a new show we've got out called Get Centered, where the clinicians from the center come together and talk about topics. Check it out at Get Centered on YouTube. Subscribe to that page also. But for now, The Sacred Speaks. Check it out at Instagram on The Sacred Speaks, Facebook, all the other things. And like it, share it, do all that stuff. Before I finish, uh, be sure to check out the... Before I finish, the Sacred Speaks website has all kinds of material on there for you to look through. Of course, every other episode that I've released. And I'm very excited about what's going on on YouTube. Look forward to a uh, more of a teaching. I'm trying to synthesize all the material I've been learning from all of these conversations. This conversation will be 59, and I'm about to post 60, and I've got a few more lined up. Uh, but what I'm trying to do is begin to um, deconstruct each episode and pick a couple of items or ideas that really stand out and begin to teach to those. So welcome, check out all these YouTube spaces, and for now we'll leave it there. Thanks for being here. I know you do a lot of these things, um, and I, I have this like, uh, here's, here's my confession. I have this complex from like, I don't wanna do what everybody else does. Like, I don't wanna do the same <laughs> stuff, you know? But I do think it's important to provide people kind of a narrative and a lens that um, that if you could fit, so, you know, the 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 highlights of part one of your book, and let us and the listener know what led you to write this book in the first place. Um, you might die tomorrow. I'll have pictures everywhere. Good book. Get the book and let uh, go on go on the experience that Kate asks you to go on. Do her meditations and fill out the. I have I have a resistance to filling out those things in books, and I I didn't in this one because it was like a big challenge you're laying down, and, uh, yeah. and so I, I actually said no I I, I want to go on this experience with Kate, and I'm glad I did. So yeah, let us know. You might die tomorrow, so live today. Where did that come from? It came from a collection of experiences that happened when I was around 30 years old. And it started with, you know, for the most of my life, I was like most people where I just, I didn't really think that much about mortality, right? You know, you'd kind of go along, you go through your invincible teenage and young years in which death doesn't exist at all. <laughs> and two, then when you start to get a little bit older, you, you become distantly aware of mortality, but you always think that you're, you know, you've got to graduate first. You got to get the job first. You got to get the partner first, get the dog. There's all these milestones that you think that you have to check off before you'll even have to think about mortality. Well, that changed radically for me because in the span of six months, three of my friends died and in just random unexpected tragedies. And they were all around my same age. So if you want to get thrown for a loop and many people out there, I'm sure have had similar experiences where in a short period of time, you've got, you know, friends or family members or even celebrities that die. And it really, I'd like to tell you that that's where my awakening came from. It wasn't. 
for an entire year after those three people died. One was my boss, 27 years old, died cliff jumping on vacation. The other one was my, um, my cousin died at 36 or 35 from really rapid onset cancer. And then uh, a friend of mine from from college was and and after college was walking across the street when she got hit by a drunk driver. Mm. And so those three things caused me to go into a year of really deep death anxiety. John, I don't know if you've experienced this before where you've just had an overcoming sense of dread that death is around every corner. It was like the security of my life was taken away. Yeah. So I mean, that does a lot of things to somebody. Uh, you know, did you, did you hide for a while? Did you, did you try to like avoid life? I tried to use a lot of unhealthy coping mechanisms, uh, and I had trouble sleeping. I was really anxious to get behind the wheel of a car because either I was going to go off the inner the the overpass, or I was going to hit someone in the intersection. I mean, you know, going from not thinking about death to realizing that it can occur and it can occur when you're 14, 20, 27, 30, 40, whatever, it really like rips away the security of your life. And, and it was the first time that that had really happened to me. And it was, it sucked all the joy out of life <laughs> is how the, really what I remember of it. I just lived in fear all the time, fear and anxiety. And, you know, what ended up snapping me out of that was, you know, not some blissful awakening. What happened was, a year after living in that really deep death anxiety, a fourth friend of mine died. Uh, he was climbing Mount Everest. His name was Dan Friedenberg and um, just past base camp on Mount Everest. When the Nepal earthquake struck, um, he was climbing up there and it triggered an avalanche and he died that morning, that morning of the earthquake. And I had been just, I had been, you know, here's me living in deep death anxiety, afraid to walk out my front door, afraid to get behind the wheel of my car. And I had been watching him training for Everest, just like salivating over his and living vicariously through his life of adventure. So we've got two like really different paradigms here. One person living very small, myopic in fear. And then we've got Dan who's like my adventure idol and I watch him and his experience all the way up Everest until then I get the news on that day that, you know what, my adventure idol is dead. You know, his, his, he risked everything. And at first I was so angry. I was like, why, why would you do something so elective? <laughs> and then, you know, your life is ripped away from yourself and then selfishly ripped away from us. Like, cause there were so many people that were following his journey. But what I realized is that he had to climb Everest because it was a die, die situation for him. He loved adventure so much and he had wanted to climb Everest so much that had he stayed on the ground, he would have died in another way as it was. And so he had to climb Everest and risk death. And so when I looked at him climbing Everest and suddenly realizing like, you know what? I'm a really clumsy person. I could die in that intersection that I was so afraid of. I could die climbing the stairs. Or if I ever wanted to try Everest, I could I could die there too. So why am I wasting my life living in fear when I'm going to die no matter what? <laughs> I, I can't stand laughing when we're talking about death right then. So <laughs> I, I have a number of places that I want to go. The first is to, to back up really quickly because I want to drop back in right here. If you're thinking about the things that you most want people who are listening to get out of this conversation, 
what are your top one or three things that you think of what you know people want? What's the what's the juice? Always my number one thing is enjoy your life. Have fun every day. That's what Dan taught me. That's what remembering that I might die tomorrow helps me do. It's so easy to get mired down in the muck. I call them dentist appointment obligations and that like crazy centripetal force of a perpetual motion of life. Like slow down, man. Enjoy your life. That's number one always. All right. And number two is that death is the, you know, we've talked a little bit about John, about, you know, the, the beauty of that anxious state and how it can, how it can contribute to productivity. I'm a procrastinator. The number one reason that remembering that I might die tomorrow is motivating to me is because it's the ultimate deadline. It's like, oh shit, I'm going to (laughs) die. I better do that thing because otherwise I'll procrastinate until I'm 99 and like have a bad hip and can no longer do the things that I've always wanted to do. Right. Yeah. And, um, and number three is to remember that we are souls and this is our one life and that we can do whatever the heck we want. And it's important to step back and do that exercise. Like you mentioned in my book to figure out, like, I'm not here to tell you how to live your life. I'm here to remind you that it is yours to live and you can do whatever the heck you want with it. And you're going to die pretty soon. So you should start now. I, so thank you. Kate, for that. Um, it's all, I, I, we're in such a, like, I guess I got a, a little anxiety there because we, we're in such a fast pace. It's ironic that the reason I asked you that to do the three things was to, de- to deal with how fast paced everybody is. So we're always like, what am I going to get out of this shit? What, tell me what, what's, what's the deal? What's the payoff here? And so, so I think about that. Okay, let's just set people up uh, in the in the in the get at the get go to uh, to figure out what they're going to get, what they might get out of it. And so we'll at least kind of build expectations, set up expectations there. Um, okay, and then you've also done something which is great. You really validated my own way of being in the world, which is you know dealing with my own anxieties when it comes to these deadlines. Uh, this so one entry point into this is we're talking about Dan and. I, I, when I read your book, I was I was really touched by this narrative here about what an adventurer he, an adventurer he is, was and is, and it, it you saying this he had to climb Mount Everest kind of brings up one of my one of the things I know you can answer because you wrote about it later on in the book and we'll get to that, which is isn't this some massive rationalization like he had to climb Everest isn't that some way that we just kind of like spiritually house our anxieties of death in the first place and oh he was destined or he has to or it's fate you know what do you say to that because I, I know I got a lot of thoughts about it I mean I say that I in my mind and knowing Dan and how much he loved life I can't think of another reason that he had to climb Mount Everest I mean we're talking a genius level capacity he was the head of privacy at Google X uber smart guy. He was an entrepreneur on the side. He opened up an idea, uh, incubation space and a co-working factory in San Francisco. He climbed mountains on the side. He went to Burning Man. Like he was an artist and like a super fun, like this guy loved life. And so how do you, how can you rationalize him climbing Everest 
because a smart, intelligent person like that knows the risks of Everest. Mm -hmm. They know that they may not come back down every single time. He, he attempted three times. Every single time he knew in, that he may not come back down. And so an intelligent person like that, you know, Everest isn't like my first, the first guy that died, um, my boss, Steven, he also loved life, super vibrant guy. And, um, you know, I, but his story was a little bit different, right? Like he was kayaking with his friends on a church trip, uh, like with a bunch of his Bible study friends. And he, in a split moment, they came up to that cliff in their kayaks. He jumped out of that kayak and scrambled up the, the cliff and he did a front flip off and he never came back up. Right. Until the, the, the emergency workers had to come back up or had to find him. So if you look at those two things, right, like both vibrant guys who loved life, but Steven's choice was made in a moment. He was an adventurous guy who loved that adrenaline rush, loved life, but he, he didn't have time really to be thinking through his choice to, to scramble up that cliff and jump off. He did it because he was pursuing fun and he was in a great mood and it unfortunately ended his life. If you contrast that with Dan's choice, right, like he trained for a year Climbing Mount Everest, I don't know the exact amount, but it's in the range of like $100,000 per time that you that you climb Everest, all inclusive with everything that you have to buy. So the vast amount of, you know, energy, time, money, and other resources that he put in, he weighed the risks. He knew that he may not come uh, back down that mountain. And so I can't, he had to have made that conscious choice that I'm going to invest all these research resources, as well as risk my life, because this is something that I have to do. And so I can't think of any other reason that he would have um, climbed Mount Everest. Yeah, it's funny. A lot of the, uh, one of the reasons why I've, I've been excited to talk to you is because uh, a, a bias of mine is that I, I, I'm intellectual. <laughs> and that's a really nice defense mechanism also. So, so we can hide out in our intellectualisms and, you know, Buddhism gets at this a lot. You know, your experience of a tree is different than calling it the tree. You know, as soon as you've named it, you've distanced yourself from it, which is why in early Jewish traditions, they didn't say the name God. It's like, it can't be spoken by human lips. It's something beyond our comprehension. And I, I'm in the psychological world. I, I certainly have, you know, one of my superpowers is curiosity. And along with that, I can kind of get myself removed from the direct experience. And what's so cool about this whole journey that you've been on is it's, it's getting into direct experience. And you know, the, other, the other thing that I think, and I talked to my brother earlier, and he said you and I were going to share a lot of conversation about this. But as an academically minded person, I was really appreciative of both your personal narrative, but also what you brought in of all these, uh, these folks that you cited, you know, you, you quoted everybody from Heidegger to Thich Nhat Hanh and you had these, these great, um, really juicy academic references. And you, so you, and I didn't know that going into it. And so you, you really held the space of the experiential work and the intellectual work. And, you know, one of the central tenets of doing this podcast in the first place for, for me was a quote that Jung said about you know, it was something like drop your your gown of academics and go into the brothels and the the revival <laughs> churches and the financial districts and the bars and the salute, like get into life. And yeah. and I spend my time, you know, surrounded by these intellectual books and all that. You've done you've done a good job of doing both. 
Yeah, so let, let's let's back up a little bit because what what is your development like? I mean, were you uh, geeky? Were you uh, did you save her life? Like, let, let's I want to know more about that. I think you said one of your superpowers is um, what, what did you say that your superpower curiosity. was? Your curiosity and being a yeah. seeker, right? Yeah. Uh, I I share that you know that curiosity as well, but I think one of my superpowers is you know, as much as I had a pretty standard upbringing is I've always really lived in the moment and uh, sometimes to an extreme, right? Like getting into a lot of trouble in uh, in high school and college for sure, because I was so in the moment, there were no consequences <laughs> to any of my actions. But, uh, but yeah, I just, I always have lived in the moment and I've always really followed my bliss even before I was aware and kind of had the the awakening, if you will, which started with, with Dan and, and those other people that died in a couple of other experiences in my life, which I think we will get into, but I've always really lived in the moment. And so I ended up in, in college. I, well, my first choice to be for my career was rock star. That did not work out. My second choice was writer and it took me about 10 years to get there. But now with this book, I'm finally an author. And uh, <laughs> so in college, I ended up choosing English lit as my major just because I was like, well, I love it. It's easy and I'm pretty good at it. So and again, that's an example of me just kind of living in the moment and going with the flow. And so, yeah, I got my degree in Santa Barbara uh, in English lit. Uh, Santa Barbara was chosen because it was closest to the beach. And I started a career in marketing. And so I was at uh, the the headquarters for Carl's Jr. and Hardee's and Google primarily for over the span of 10 years. And that took me to the point where, as you read in the book, I realized that I needed more in out of life at that point. So, so backing up, you know, I'm going to take advantage of you here. You you say you did your bachelor's in English lit. What are the top five books that people need to read? What If, if, if you ruled the world, what would be the the five books everybody's got to read. Oh gosh. Well, in no particular order, my book, number one. <laughs> <laughs> I like no, that I'm just joking. So, uh, no, don't joke. Live it. Right? Own it. Own it. <laughs> no, I love, I love, um, man's search for meaning has had an Im immense impact on my life. Man's search mm -hmm. for meeting by Victor Frankel, the untethered soul by Michael Singer. Mm -hmm. I love Canterbury tales, the classic, uh, you know, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And I mean, I think reading anything takes you away. You're talking about experiencing life. Yeah. Like, I think, you know, pick up any, any book. Uh, but that was one of the reasons I went into English Lit is because I just loved learning like you, that curiosity. And, and that's what. Did you, did you always have that? Yeah. I mean, I was a reader from a very young age yeah. and I would, I mean, from like before I could read, I would pretend read the books to my parents and was reading chapter books at a pretty young age. And in the fifth grade, I solely started and recruited a whole team of journalists for the fifth grade newsletter, the first fifth grade newsletter that had ever <laughs> been published. So, you know, that's the main feather in my cap. That was my, mine was a little different. Mine's a compensation. I, I learned how to sleep in class and not pay attention and <laughs> shit like that. So no, that's good. So this started early and did you, I hear the rock star piece. When did writing a book come online for you? Writing a book. I had always wanted to write a book, but as soon as I, so after Dan died, you know, I was sitting, you know, he died. And then like a week later I was laying in bed and I had this like 
this voice in my head going, you might die tomorrow. So live today. And that was really when I, over the span of the, that time after Dan died was when I realized I had been living so afraid of death, like in total terror of death that I was no longer enjoying life. And that flipped so radically to the opposite that now I realized that remembering that I might die tomorrow or, or remembering my mortality in general can actually be the most motivating part of living and, and can help the procrastinator like me stop putting things off and can help me focus on enjoying my life instead of getting caught up in that muck and mire of everyday living or that Heidegger's everyday mode. And, um, and so that was when I became, well, first I thought I was the first person who had ever came up with the idea. And then I started Googling around and realizing <laughs> that mortality awareness has literally been around as, as a motivational tool has been around since forever, ancient times. And that was when I realized that I became so on fire with this idea that at the same time, I decided I wanted to write a book about it. I also realized that I wanted to live that way. Like, how can I best live like I might die tomorrow? And so those got a little bit mixed up at the time because writing a book and trying to live a life of adventure and freedom and joy, they didn't mix uh, quite as well <laughs> as I'd hoped. So I ended up um, coming up with the idea for the book at the same time that I realized that I needed to leave my job at Google so that I could travel, which is something that I thought I would do in retirement. But when I realized realized I might die, you know, I had to do it at that time. Yeah. Cause where it is. So that's where we needed to drop back in was you were talking about Google, how you got a job out there. And it seemed through the book that you were referencing a number for the layperson like myself, who just knows Google as most of us know Google. I hear these references every now and then about how they run their business. And you, you had a number of ideas that were, I, I forget what you called it. It was like, it was like radical excitement or I forget the concept that you were, it was, it was the idea of, um, of trying out big, big ideas and yeah, uncomfortably at, excited. That's it. Uncomfortably excited. Mm -hmm. D is, is the inner world of Google as interesting as we on the outside of Google imagine that it is? Yes. Yeah, it is. I mean, I uh, loved working at Google. It's, um, I mean, it has its pros, it has its cons for sure, but it changed my life. I mean, it, it really instilled in me, the culture at Google instilled in me that anybody can change the world. You just have to have an idea and you have to have enough bravery and tenacity to, to try it. And so that was, and then it also, it taught me a lot about um, just working hard and being around really smart people. And I, I met so many great people. The downside is that you, it's, it is such a great place to work and they give everything to you on a silver platter that, you know, I got a big head from it. And that was one of the reasons that I had to leave was because I realized after being there for almost five years that I had wrapped so much of my personal self-worth into the cool job that I had at Google, making all this money and all of the, you know, um, sort of like brownie points that, that one gets from having a job at Google, right? It's like, I was, I couldn't wait for the people at the party to ask me what my job was so that I could say I worked at Google. And when I suddenly the lights flipped on in terms of what matters most in life, when, when death, you know, in, look, influenced my life and I realized, oh man, I don't want to be, I don't want my, my worth to be wrapped up in my job. There's so mm -hmm. much more amazing thing. And I'm not saving babies. I wasn't saving babies at Google. I wasn't designing, you know, the contact that would measure blood sugar and save lives. I was doing marketing and sales. And so while I 
there was some good meaning in there. I was really wrapped up, I think, at the end in the weightless meaning. And and so I had to I had to blow up my life and start over in order to figure out what really was meaningful to me. Yeah, you referenced that Viktor Frankl piece. Did you read that early on or did your research in the book take you into that world? I had read Viktor Frankl on a plane before I had gone through any of the experiences that I've mentioned in our conversation so far. So, And then I read it again, of course, after that, because, yeah, Lo- Victor, Victor Frankl, logotherapy, the idea that mm-hmm. everything in life comes back to our sense of meaning is... And I, I take that idea and I put it into every single moment. So, you know, the idea of having meaning in life from that zoomed out perspective can be way too much pressure. It's like, oh my gosh, what's my purpose? What's my meaning in life? And so that's why when you ask me, what are the three things you want to, people to take away? The number one thing is to enjoy your life. Because if you make enjoying your life, your meaning on a daily basis, you're going to be creating these radically beautiful ripples of goodness that are going to go far beyond that which you'll ever imagine. And you're going to be creating a positive influence of good just by letting your internal light radiate and by enjoying your life, having fun and being kind to the people that you meet. Uh, You know, I jump around so much, but do you, when I was reading this book, I was thinking about how you live your life and the kind of obligation, and I use that word probably as what I'm projecting onto you, but the, the obligation to live this life. Like, is, is it, does it really click or is it difficult? I mean, are you, are you kind of going, oh shit, you know, I gotta go do this thing because I can't be the, like, I need to go take a nap girl. I need to be the, I gotta jump off the, whatever. Is, is, it, is it tough having written this and then having to live up to that? I'll tell you a quick story. And that was this past year I had gone through at the end of 2019, I went through a breakup that was really sad and hard. And I felt so depleted after the breakup and it just being a tough relationship that I flew directly. We broke up actually um, on the desert at Burning Man. And I flew directly from Reno to France to visit Thich Nhat Hanh's monastery, Plum Village, because I I had never, I had like read some of his quotes, but I had never read a Thich Nhat Hanh book, but I was searching for meditation retreats because I just knew that I needed to relight my inner spark because I felt so dark. So I flew directly to France and I, um, you know, in between crying through the streets of Portugal and France, because I was so sad of this breakup, At the end of the week-long retreat at Plum Village, we were given an opportunity to have a one-on-one with one of the nuns and ask them a question. And not everyone took advantage of it, but of course I was like, oh my gosh, I have this burning question. And that question was, uh, how can I be the best teacher of this message? So at the end of the retreat, the day came, we're sitting outside under the tree, this really, this gorgeous nun and I, her face is shining. I tell her like a brief version of the story that I've just told you today about the death and my awakening and my trying to, you know, create this message to help people come alive and enjoy their lives before they die. And I close and I said, how can I be, how can I be a good teacher? How can I best teach this message? And she just looked at me with these soft, kind eyes. And she said, your life is the message. And, oh gosh, of course I started crying, but it was not what I wanted to hear. (laughs) 
at all. I wanted her to give me the secret to like, you know, how, what words do I use? What book do I write? What, who do I contact? Like some tactical way. And she was like, no, it, she essentially said, you know, it doesn't matter what you write. It doesn't matter, you know, what fame you reach or all it matters is that it starts with you. And so I've really taken that message to heart and that I have to live like I might die tomorrow. And my version of living like I might die tomorrow is different than what yours is or what anyone's will be. And so that is why I live this way is because A, it's way more fun to live like you might <laughs> die tomorrow because like all of that weight of self-importance and a lot of the fears dissipate and an urgency is created and also time is a little bit slowed down. But it's also because I know that regardless of whatever I write, um, living my version of my best life is my way to create that meaning that Viktor Frankl talks about. Well, and a, a thought, thank you for that. Uh, this is gonna be fun, Kate, because you can go into a lot of places. <laughs> um, my my thought about, um, I forget the, the, the several guys, the, the couple of fellows that were living on the sailboat and you mm -hmm. had this, you know, of course, when you're a trust fund kid, you know, you can do whatever you like, you live on a sailboat and then come to find out that's not the case. They didn't have that profile and you don't either. It should be, st yeah. <laughs> it should be stated yeah. because when you talk about, oh, I was over here and then I went to Paris and then I did it up, I, you know, people immediately assume like, okay, there are unlimited funds that are here. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to living your life fully, that's not one of the, you know, the feathers that you got in your cap, right? I mean, you really have been vigilant about how to live this lifestyle. Yeah. And I'm so grateful for it. I mean, I learned a lot of hard work and great. My parents were great teachers, but I had to buy my own first car. I, I worked my way through college. I had a part-time or a full-time job all the way through the four or five years. I think I was in college for five years because I loved it so much, you know, all of these things. And I was lucky. I've gotten a lot of great breaks along the way, you know, working at Google was great, but there, it, it, I guess it talks a little bit about the balance between living like you might die tomorrow and blowing every cent that you have and mm. eating every brownie in sight, balancing that with the reality <laughs> that you probably won't die tomorrow. Like you very well could, but you probably won't. And so there is some balance that needs to happen there. And I, I also think that you have to have simple tastes Right. Which more living in a lens of mortality helps you do. Well, and so go, let's go back there because let's kind of pick up the narrative. You know, you uh, were, we didn't even get to that part of the narrative with what was going on with you at Google and how you were doing emotionally. And so can we pick up there and kind of continue mm -hmm. the narrative a bit? Cool. Yeah. So which, wait, which part? The part where I got divorced? Well, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, yeah, let, Kate, let's let's talk about the most difficult experiences of your life in a public forum. Yeah. You know, how's that? You know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so here I am at Google, having been there for five years and have this been instilled this desire to change the world, the the belief that that anybody can do it, working with great people, making all this money, and then at the same time having this awakening where I realized that I could die at any moment. Well, at the same time, my marriage was crumbling. And, uh, you know, we 
we had met when we were 20 and I had, we had gotten married and had a great beginning of our marriage, but you know, in the end we just, we were not meant to be together. And so all of these things are happening, right? Like this around the age of 30 where I'm, you know, have this great job that I'm not that happy in, but had taught me so much. I had had this awakening with, you know, people, friends dying and being in mortality terror. And then also an aspect of my personal life that had been so important to me was ending. And what happened was, is we ended up getting divorced, which was, you know, sad, but really beautiful because we knew that we were not meant to be together. And so it was really starting on our next journey. And then I realized I had no more reasons to tell my friend, Melissa, that I couldn't come visit her on her sailboat in Tahiti. And uh, she had been asking me for years. And I said, well, you know what? My friend Dan would want me to do this. He's the adventurer. I'm single and I haven't taken a vacation in years. So this is, this is the moment. Well, so th that's one of the values of Dan also. It, it seems like part of what he, he did for you is he, he was like a, a reference point, you know, like, like, uh, like what would Dan do? You know, yeah. uh, so, and we all need that. These heroic figures that like, we kind of say, what was that movie with Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin? He said, what one man the can edge. do. An yes, that's it. What one man can do, another man can do. And I, I think that kind of, uh, those resistances that tend to keep us. So that's a, you had had resistance though. Yeah. Like, and I, well, just one thing to go back to what you were saying is that I think we, especially in the Instagram age, run the risk of looking at someone who's doing badass stuff in their lives and, and say, well, oh, they're doing these adventurous things there, but I couldn't. And, you know, I, uh, I have all of the, I don't have enough money or I don't, I have the, I have kids, I have a job. We invent all these reasons why we can't do things. But if you flip that mindset and you're like, I follow you know, who's your Dan in your life? Who's the adventurer or the person who's living their life so vibrantly? And think of it instead as shoot for the moon and land among the stars. So maybe you're never going to climb Mount. I'm probably never going to climb Mount Everest. Like I've, I've, I'm good with like trekking multiple days, but like once the ice pick comes in and like that real, you know, climbing a mountain, uh, with the risk of death is just not on my top list of things to do. But Dan, instead of looking at him being like, Oh, well there's Dan, you know, he's got all this money and he's gorgeous and he works at Google. He's doing that. I, instead of looking at it that way, I instead looked at it as, you know, if I can try to be like Dan, I'm going to end up maybe at that halfway point. And that will be me living my most vibrantly. And, uh, and that's understanding that we all are living at different levels of personal growth, soul growth. We all have different, you know, gimmies available to us in terms of opportunity and money and all of these things. So we, if we look at those as ways to get towards our greatest potential as, as opposed to me trying to get to Dan's greatest potential that can really help us to reach our personal maximum. And the way that I like to look at it is how can I die with the least amount of regrets? How can I die feeling like I really lived Kate the best that Kate could live? That's a hugely important question. The, of course, the obstructions here are the various fears and anxieties and uh, Jim Hollis said once, I love this quote, he said that, you know, every day we wake up, we face two gremlins at the edge of our bed. One is fear and the other is lethargy. 
One says, don't go out there. It's scary. The other says, stay in bed. It's cozy. <laughs> and then we, and yeah. so walking that line is, is obviously pretty difficult. But you just said the ways to get to our greatest potential. And uh, how, do you, how does one do that? Like, how, I, I find that one of the things that people struggle with is that even mining that territory of discovering what one's potential is, the seeds in oneself can be pretty difficult. Um, certainly, I'm, I'm curious. I won't fill in the blank. I'm wondering about why you think it is so difficult for people to kind of go into that next phase of finding and discovering and then living out their potential. Because that's that's the good stuff. That's, you know, in, in Aladdin, you know, you have that cave that's like in the shape of a lion head and then you go in and it's all the riches of the world. But in order to get there, you have to like go down the rocks and then there's lava and there's, and then you have to find the magic carpet and all of this. Like if it was easy, it wouldn't be fun. Right? Like if, if being the best Kate was easy, it would be boring. And so we have to, I, and that's why I think that living with that awareness of mortality is a great metaphor for facing fear. Because in order to live with an awareness of mortality, you have to accept that to some degree it's scary. You may not be afraid of the act of dying, but the idea of non-existence is frightening to all of us because existence is all we know. And so I think that um, using that, strengthening our fear in general by facing our fear of mortality helps us to face fears in our everyday life so that we can get inside that Aladdin lion head cast, uh, <laughs> cave and, and really experience those riches and jewels because there's two things that happen when you live your badass life. A, you get to live your badass life. And B, you get the satisfaction of knowing that you faced your fear and came on the other side to live that badass life. And those are not the same thing. They're different. And to be able to stand up at the top of that mountain or to stand at the end of your life and look back and know that not only you got to enjoy your life, but to have the satisfaction that you overcame, you got knocked down over and over and you got up and you did the things even when it was hard. That's the true riches. Preach. Yeah. <laughs> you said uh, awareness of mortality, and I immediately thought, well, a lot of people don't even have that. You know, not even. And I'm wondering, when you were growing up, what was your understanding of death? How did that inevitability show up in your upbringing? I'm from the Midwest and we were definitely the type of family that was like, if you don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. <laughs> but I will say that I had, you know, a few deaths starting from the, around the age of like 10 that I was aware that death existed, but I had no real understanding of, you know, what that means for life or how that can be used or how it's a natural part of life. And so you know, really, I learned all of these lessons relatively late. And I say relatively because I learned that we could die and it could be at any moment. When I was around 30, a lot of people will wake up on their 50th, 60th, 70th, 80th birthday, and they will then for the first time realize that life, it can end at any moment. And that maybe some of the dreams that they had had you know, maybe you have a bad back or maybe you can't do that dream for whatever reason. Maybe it's too late. And so I feel lucky to have learned it at 30. But I think that parents have a great opportunity to help instill that awareness of mortality in a healthy way 
to their kids. And, and I'll close with this final, with this, this thought with one final note, which is that when people die now in, in life, if you don't have an awareness of mortality and you don't think about death at all, then when someone close to you dies, you not only have to deal with the loss of that person, but you also have to deal with the extreme shock that comes. And that, oh my gosh, that makes it so much exponentially more difficult to deal with death. Because before you even get to the grief or get to the part where you miss the person, you're reeling. Your whole world is turned upside down because it never crossed your mind. And that's actually a passive voice. You never allowed it to cross your mind or invited the idea that that person could die into your mind. And so you have to process a whole lot of shock and non-understanding of mortality before you can even get to grieving. And so that's where mortality awareness can help you not only live your life better, but also when someone in your life does die, you can bypass a lot of that shock and get to, you know, the, the grieving part, which is non-negotiable anyway. Well, it, it brings up culture as a part of the conversation. You wrote about it. I was glad you did. And it seemed as if part of what took you into other cultures, of course, was travel. Um, you know, we, uh, we, we are up against a tendency, and I think you, you had like three references through the book about the pack dynamic that we have. And, you know, we're up against that pull to be part of a pack. And you, you know, given this tra- series of traumas, you know, you left it. You, know, you finally gave life to this thing and you said, I'm going to go discover something. So what did you see in other cultures that maybe had you looking at your, the culture of your birth in a way that was not so positive? I don't know, crit- critical, a bit more, uh, more critiques? I mean, I think anytime we travel, we learn lessons and we, we see things differently. And I, I just noticed that a lot of hard topics in other cultures are dealt with in a much more accepted way. And certainly the experience that I had in Bali, where I went to the funeral of the man and it was kind of like a party, (laughs) you know, they're passing out ice cream, they're playing music, they're just walking around talking at this cremation ceremony of this man. It helped me see that we don't have to do things the way that we are acculturated to or the way that we are conditioned to. And that's what mortality does for me, not just thinking about, you know, the way we look at death, but thinking about mortality puts life in a perspective where it makes you question why we do anything. And that's, that's what you want because I lived life checking off those boxes. I wanted to get married. I wanted to buy the house because I didn't know how else life could be lived. And then when I went down to Tahiti for the first time and lived on a sailboat for those couple of weeks and saw all these people living these amazing lives off the grid or different paths that didn't have a ton of money to do it. They just kind of made it work. That's when I realized that truly living like you might die tomorrow is less about jumping out of airplanes and more about just taking a second to think about why am I doing what am I, what I'm doing in life? And is this what I really want? Or am I blindly following that pack that you mentioned, John? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm just so interested about all the stories that you ex- experienced when you were traveling. Take us through that. Cause we're kind of up against that point in our timeline here that we're kind of leaving and coming back to Google divorce and you're out mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you're on a, on a boat in Tahiti. <laughs> yeah. 
It was. That's lovely. And again, it was an amazing stroke of, you know, fortuitous events because I had had my best friend from high school who I hadn't seen in a couple of years had her and her husband had gotten this boat and sailed, you know, done the 30 day sail all the way from uh, Southern California down to French Polynesia. And she had been, Hey, hey, come out, come visit. All you have to do is buy the plane ticket. Once you get here, you really don't have to spend money. And I kept saying, no, 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 because of all the reasons we invent to not enjoy our life and to prioritize the stuff that doesn't matter over the stuff that does. And so eventually I said, you know what, there's no more reasons to not do it. Dan would have done it. And so I went down there and that was when the, really the first time in my life, again, around the age of 30, that, you know, it made me realize how much I never considered anything other than the normal societal lifestyle of all those, you know, check boxes that I've mentioned a couple of times here. And so, yeah, I found myself on that boat going for the first time at 30 years old. Oh, you mean I can do whatever I want with my life? I mean, I really viscerally had that, that realization. It never occurred to me that I was in control the external society, my parents, like other people's expectations, what I thought I should do, those were all in control of me until that moment that I realized it's my life. The onus of responsibility lies on me and I can do whatever I wanted. I could go decide to become a painter. I could quit my job to travel the world. I could sail, find a way to sail away on a sailboat. I could decide that I want to start, you know, collecting rare breeds of chickens and like try to get a ranch somewhere. Like whatever I wanted to do, I realized that I was the only one holding myself back from doing that. And at that time, I had really always had this desire to experience the world. We share this curiosity, John, and I had really just, I wanted to explore. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to know more. And so I was in these golden handcuffs at Google and I realized, you know what, I want my self-worth to come from something inside of me and I want to explore. And those two things meant that I was going to quit my job at Google and travel around the world. And through, through a series of fortuitous, again, events where I saved up some money, I got a break by ended up getting laid off at the last minute yeah, at Google. Is... And so I got a severance package. Yeah. Um, I left Google in February. Well, actually, I the last three months at Google, I kind of talked them into letting me work from Sydney, Australia. So I spent my three last three months at Google working from the Sydney office. And then uh, I left and I was I was going to travel for a year, ended up being on the road for two years. And I was just freeze a bird. And it was, it was amazing. And this is what a lot of people do when they retire. But I was like, you know what? I don't know if I'm going to make it. And so I'm going to have to roll the dice and do it now. Just a, a, a check, though, for anybody listening. When Kate's describing not having any kind of outer world responsibilities, did your anxiety go up when you were listening to that? Because I want you to pay <laughs> attention to that. I do. I think, I think people, you know, we have this empathic attunement that we all do. And, you know, we project onto other people. and you know, of course there are these structures that exist that I'm beholden to, you know, that are operating at, as a program that informs my decisions, my beliefs, my worldview. And th there's a reason why trauma tends to be correlated with this kind of, I, I would consider it a religious event, you know, where you are 
kind of broken open and something pours into the spaces that were there before that is empowering and you're, you know, there's a beginner's mind that kind of erupts. And it, it is interesting that it tends to be trauma that is most often supplies the juice, you know, for those structures to break. And you're you're trending in that direction. It, what was it like when you're? I mean, I, I, I'm assuming it takes a little while for those programs to uh, to go away. Yes, well, and I didn't learn about it until much later. But it brings up the the concepts of uh, post traumatic stress, and then what I learned about later, which was post traumatic growth. And my understanding is that, you know, post-traumatic stress, it, stress is something that a lot of us have an understanding of, which is something bad happens and it hurts and your whole world kind of crumbles and your whole idea of like what is stable and unstable crumbles. And you have a really hard time like reassimilating in that new reality mm-hmm. based on that trauma happening. But what I learned later is that that post-traumatic stress can eventually transition into post-traumatic growth. And post-traumatic growth is typically defined as your world has has been really turned on its head. But when you get to that post-traumatic growth, it's when you're able to have to reassimilate your new reality based on those traumas that happened. And and if you zoom out on what happened to me, death, you know, multiple deaths in a row, divorce. Um, you know, choosing to, you know, being unhappy in my job and all of that. Those were, those were the, the stresses and the traumas mm-hmm. that occurred. And I, for a while, for that year, I didn't know how to react. I was living in fear. I was afraid to go outside. I gained a bunch of weight. I was really unhappy and sad. But slowly, as Dan died, as I went down to Tahiti and I was exposed to these new ways of living, I was able to pick up the pieces of my broken world and reassimilate a new house. And that new house for me at that time, that post-traumatic growth for me was realizing that, yes, people die. Yes, people get divorced. Um, but, and yes, time is short and I have no, lo- no idea how long I have. But my new house was that despite all of that, I'm going to choose to live today. And because that's all that I have. And so whether it's traveling for you or jumping out of an airplane or whether you have 12 kids, six kids, zero kids, whether you are $50,000 in debt, or, you know, you had all your debt paid off, like whatever your reality is, it's up to you to pass, it's up to all of us to pass less judgment on how all of us are living like we might die tomorrow. So I'm talking about traveling around the world, which is like this very sexy thing that everyone's like, oh, well, of course I'd love to travel around the world. (laughs) When A, you don't know about all the struggles that went through that. And you don't know, you know, whether I was staying in chateaus everywhere I went or whether I was backpacking on the beach. But I think that before we pass judgment on the way that people are living like we might die tomorrow, number one, first and foremost, how the heck do you want to live before you die? Do you even care that much about traveling or do you just like to hate on people that traveling that are traveling because you have kids and you don't feel like you can do it? You know, like maybe you're living like you might die tomorrow is sitting and watching the sunset every day on your rocking chair, sipping tea with your kids running around outside. That sounds pretty awesome to me. And that requires enough money to buy tea and have a house mm-hmm. and to have had kids, right? And so before we're, we're judging other people's dreams, like first step back and be like, well, wait, what do I want to do before I die? 
when I am 95 and sitting on that front porch, what do I want to look back and feel proud to have done? And then um, all of those can help us create the reality based on our traumas and our desires and our spiritual path to create that ideal reality to where we can enjoy our life and achieve our dreams, big and small. Well, you've been traveling and speaking and doing these kinds of things in support of this book, right? Like what, what do you find? What's, what, what is, uh, what's the question? What is the most common critique you hear or where do people get their feathers ruffled when they come up to you and talk? Or is it all like, Oh my God, I want to do this. Like, how does that go? Well, I mean, you certainly brought up a great point, which is people think that I'm a trust fund baby and that my parents must have paid for my trip and are, are floating this, this whole thing. But I don't worry too much about that because there's plenty of scrappy. And that's one thing that Google taught me was even though Google has a lot of money, they teach you to be scrappy and have that startup mentality where with a low amount of money, what can you make happen and put something out in the world as it is, as opposed to trying to wait 20 years for it to be perfect. But the second thing that I come up against a lot is like, but I think is actually a very powerful part of my message is people are like, you know, death is so morbid. How are you like so happy and enjoying your life? And I think that that is where, uh, like my life as the message is I'm a very cheerful, optimistic, like can do person. Do I deal with like challenge and sadness? Oh yeah. Every single day. But a lot of the people that are in the space talking about mortality are, um, you know, they, you imagine them like Wednesday Adams, and then you've got me that's like, Oh, Hey, like, let's, let's not just talk about living an adventurous and awesome life. Let's talk about using mortality as your way to live your best life. And that's, uh, that's a challenge is people are like, your book is like a cheerleader. Yeah. Don't we all need a cheerleader? <laughs> Agreed. Kate. I think we need more. Yeah. But it, it, it it's, I, I it's a, it's like a cheerleader from Nirvana's smells like teen spirit. You know, it's like, uh, there's a, there's a reality to this cheerleader. She's going <laughs> to fuck with you a little bit, you know, and she's going to call you out, but just true. I mean, I like what you're saying about this, that it's, it's a lens through which you see your world as opposed to what we commonly do see when talking about death. It's a more somber conversation. Whereas you're talking about living in a way that brings death central to life, which I, I think is the thing that, well, I, I'm inspired also by your book, so I don't want to like go off on all this stuff. But I want to talk about the things that influenced you the most when you did end up traveling and getting into other cultures. What did you see about the way other cultures experience or um, their their religious uh, processes orient themselves to death? What what stuck out the most? I originally thought when I came up with this idea that it was really central to and this was my own kind of myopic view was that, you know, this idea of mortality awareness and, and working too hard and not enjoying your life is, you know, some, it's an American thing. That is absolutely 150% totally wrong because what I found, I was so on fire with this idea of living like you might die tomorrow when I took the trip that I talked about it with everybody. <laughs> like, no, whatever country, whether I'm using Google Translate on my phone or able to have a conversation. And what I realized was that everybody thought everybody was interested in this message. Some people hated it because they immediately thought that it was morbid, but the majority of people all saw the benefit and they, they saw the problem of working too hard, not enjoying your life, letting your life pass by without, you know, that mindful, mindful approach. And, and that was when I realized that this isn't, 
an American thing, living like you might die tomorrow or working too hard. Either one of those, uh, this, it's a human thing, right? Life is hard life. We we've all got responsibilities and stresses and we could all use a wake up call. And you know what? The fact that we're going to die is universal. It's going to happen to every single one of us, whether we like it or not. And no matter how much money you have, because we still have not yet achieved immortality. Yeah. A lot of people are working at that though. Uh, okay. So what are the stories here? Cause I, I want to, I'm, I'm, I'm noticing, I'm wanting to jump in also to the, the second and third part of your book, which, where you really got into the, I would say academic, you know, you, you started doing your research. Um, but I still feel like there's, there's even some stories that are stepping out right now. Um, that I'm wondering if you, could you share maybe three of the most significant experiences that you had in your travels? Uh, and how they informed your perspective on You Might Die Tomorrow. Oh, my goodness. I think that the, you know, living like you might die tomorrow is certainly about death and mortality awareness. But at the end of the day, I just want to feel alive while I'm alive. And so the moments in travel that I felt most free and that I felt most alive were when I was, you know, letting my curiosity lead the way as opposed to letting my fear lead the way. And so being a single woman traveling the world by herself, um, there was a lot of that, there was a lot that went into that, right? But I wanted to meet people and get to know the world with abandon while also staying alive. And so some of the experiences that I enjoyed most were I met this amazing, I stayed at this very small uh, Ryokan, I probably butchered that pronunciation, pronunciation in Japan. And I ended up being the only guest in rural Japan. And it was like a B&B and it was just the woman and her husband and I in this like 12 person house. And, you know, her and I really, we had no way to communicate because I had no cell service. And I, for some reason, my Japanese Google Translate had gone away, but we connected so much. You know, she, I think she was probably in her 90s, and we would just have these hand conversations, and she would speak in broken English. And she told me the story about how when she was, she had always wanted to visit the Himalayas. You know, here's this woman in Japan, uh, small town Japan. And she had always wanted to visit the Himalayas and, but her, her health was getting a little bit poor. And so her sister, a couple years prior to when I met her had surprised her, they flew to Nepal and she got her, she, she couldn't walk the mountains anymore because she was too old. And her sister had gotten her this, this plane ride over the Himalayas so that she could see Everest and she could see, you know, this amazing place. And, and she's telling me this in, in broken Japanese and my, broken, um, her broken English, my broken Japanese. And at the end of the conversation, she just said, you know, what I realized was when I came down was that God lives there. And, and what she meant was not that God lives necessarily in the Himalayas, but God lives in that experience of feeling alive. God lives in those experiences of awe, in those experiences of gratitude. And so that really colored my trip, you know, for, for the rest of the for the rest of the trip after that. And even 
still to this day, which is just instead of chasing goals in life and chasing like the next great thing, I really just try to rest in those moments where God lives. And, you know, God doesn't live necessarily jumping out of the plane. You know, I use skydiving as the example so often because that's where people's minds go when they think about, oh, if I was going to die tomorrow. But what I learned when I came back, and, and I'll end this by saying that travel stories are awesome. But the biggest story for me is what I learned when I came back. And, you know, I was on the road for two years. I, I was uh, international for a year and a half or like a little over a year and a half. And then when I came back, I took my dog on a road trip for three months around the United States where we essentially camped and like stayed in my car and traveled all around the coast of California and Oregon. And then I came back and I had to get a job and I had to pay bills and I had to sit in traffic going to and from work every day and, you know, all the normal stuff that we have to do. And I had forgotten what that Japanese lady said, said to me when I got back, I got so wrapped up in all the crap that I was supposed to do and trying to do well at work and making money and, and making all these moves. And ultimately several months after I got back and I was just having such a hard time reacclimating, you know, I remembered what she said. And I had this experience where I walked my dog like I did every day after work. And for this one day, I just became completely touched by the magic of trees. And I had seen these trees walking around every day because I walked about the same route with my dog pajamas pretty much every day. But this one day, I suddenly became aware of how absolutely stunningly beautiful they are and what a part and uh, that they serve in our lives. And I was just, it was like I had entered this magical forest, except the magical forest was the street that I walked every single day. Mm -hmm. And that was when I remembered. That was the the most important lesson from my travels, which is that you can travel far and wide and travel is extremely conducive to finding those transcendent moments of aliveness. But the real path to living a happy life and living a joyful life and a joy and a life that I'm going to be satisfied with at the end is finding those magic in the everyday moments where God lives at my house where God lives at my parents' house, where God lives on my own street and in my park nearby and in the blades of grass and the puffy clouds in the sky. And so that's where I find my joy today is, um, is in the small meaningful things and the small meaningful aspects of being alive. I'm so with you. I had this experience recently where I was washing dishes and I, I became a monk in my own home. You know, I, it, it was so great. I was like, I'm cleaning up my family's mess and my mess. And I'm, I'm doing what it takes to live. And I felt so alive just washing dishes. And it sent me off on this really cool experience for a few days where I, I had these moments of just the way I walked around my house was different than it had been before. And it, it, it have you done a lot of therapy, Kate? I've done a fair amount. Uh, why do you ask? Well, I'm, you, you kind of have the languaging system of a therapist. <laughs> And you know the 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 work you did in your research on the book was so good and thorough. It really like like one one part in particular stands out, and this this comes to mind is when you were talking about what you can do when you have a problem. And there's a therapy called DBT. It's dialectical behavioral therapy. It's what you say. Look, you know, when any problem is presented in your life, you have four options. You can do nothing. You can make it worse. You can change the way you think about it, or you can problem solve. And you had three of those. I forget which one wasn't on. I think do nothing wasn't on there. But 
when you said that, I thought, you know, it's so important to teach people that, that we can be somewhat systematic about how we approach problems and these dilemma that we, um, that we encounter. And right there, you've got this problem of your mind is all the monkey mind, you're freaking out and anxious, and part of what happens is you transcend it, so you change, you change the way you think about the problem. And unfortunately, though, that's not always easy to do. And so, so what do you do with somebody? I'm sure that, you know, you're, somebody's asking you like, yeah, but how do I, how do I do this when I'm living currently? What's, what's your recommendation? Zoom the heck out, <laughs> zooming out. And that's what mortality, that's what thinking about my death does for me is, mm -hmm. is again, these small little like grains of sand that we get ourselves all scratched up by in our everyday life. If you zoom out, then you can see the beach, then you can see the ocean and you can see the tides and everything that moves. And so I find that when I'm most unhappy is when I'm, I'm getting scratched up by these little annoying grains of sand of, of usually stuff that, that doesn't matter. Or if I'm looking for perspective, the best way I can find to do that is to zoom out. And that's why mortality is like, oh, whoa, I'm going to die one day. This, or, you know, you think, oh, this thing's bothering me. This situation is bothering me. This person's driving me crazy. I don't know what to do. Or what should I do next with my career? If you zoom out and, and look at it from like, okay, like, how do I want to look at this? Or how do I want to have acted in this situation when I'm looking at it from my deathbed? Mm -hmm. And that's where I came up with the deathbed gut check, which is when you are faced with a decision in your everyday life that you're having trouble with. And I have decisions like this every single day that I'm like, Oh shoot, what do I, what do I do? I'm so mired down and I can't see the forest through the trees. Uh, the, de the deathbed gut check is something that you can do and we can do it together right now, which is, you know, think of a situation that you're faced with, you're having trouble with right now. It could be maybe you're struggling with making a purchase or taking a job or how to respond to someone that's hurt you, you know, think about that situation. And then what I do is I close my eyes and I imagine myself on my deathbed. So I'm looking at myself in my mind's eye right now. I'm seeing Kate. Thankfully, she's old and shriveled and she's lying on her deathbed on white sheets with bright windows and there's flowers everywhere. And old Kate is looking back at this decision that I'm struggling with right now, which is how to reply to someone that, that made me angry yesterday. And old Kate would, um, would look back here and I want her to feel, have a good gut feeling about the way that, that old Kate reacted. And so I think, okay, how would I react on my deathbed if I lashed out and, you know, was off the cuff, angry, old Kate would not approve. Old Kate would wish that she had risen above and reacted with love. And so I observe how I feel in my gut, having chosen option A, option B, or however many options I'm going back and forth. And I observe how I feel in my gut from the perspective of my deathbed. And that tells me how to act. That helps me zoom out and think about how I want to act in the great scheme of things, which is how I want to act and how I also want to be remembered. And the deathbed gut check is something that I do several times a week to, um, to get myself out of decision paralysis, out of procrastination and figure out like, what's my greater purpose in, um, in this situation. Well, it's uh, what I like about one of the things I really like about what the, uh, this process is about is it doesn't, it doesn't make you repress something, you know, which is so much, 
I think people get into the propositional, like it's either true or false, or it's good or bad, or I should do it or not do it. And by by doing this imaginal exercise, you're, you're actually held more accountable to what you really, really want to do, not just what your reaction wants you to do or what you think you should do or what Timmy would do or Elliot or Jenny. You know, that that is, um, then you're held accountable to your own, this is truth, capital T, you know, and, and all of a sudden you actually maybe have to communicate in a way that's loving, even though you don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it holds me accountable to that ideal version of myself because it's yeah. easy to get away. It's easy to get away from that ideal and, and do things that we don't feel great about, um, or that we might look back on negatively. And so, you know, I think about regret as like a backpack where we're going to end up when we climb the mountain of life with a few regrets in the bottom. Like we can't try to live as a perfectionist trying to avoid every possible regret at the end, or we're not going to make every decision exactly, exactly the way we would have wanted. But if we, again, shoot for the moon uh, of living with no regrets, we're going to land among the stars with living with as few regrets as we could have, as long as we're doing our best. Yeah. And, um, and so that's why the deathbed gut check helps me avoid those deathbed regrets. Well, I want to jump for a second, if you're cool, because um, I don't want to keep you forever. You're being generous with your time. Thank you. Um, you, 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 Bonnie Ware, I think that's her name, right? Bonnie Ware. Uh, Bonnie you, Ware from you, Australia. Yeah, you quoted her top five regrets of the dying, and I really appreciated you bringing this into the conversation. I want to read through them real quick, and then let's see where we go. Um, so number one is, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life that others expected of me. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Number four, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. And number five, I wish that I had let myself be happier. Um, that's pretty pivotal. I mean, you know, I've referenced this before that I'll say something like nobody on their deathbed says, I wish I made more money right now, you know, but I, and I knew of her book, but I hadn't read it. I, I'm glad you brought it in. Um, you know, when you were, well, let's start there. I mean, what, what stood out to you about this? Because I'm curious as a researcher, you know, why this? Um, what was attractive about this? And why did you include it in the book? Because I'm sure you went through a pretty big discerning process of what made it in and what didn't. Well, the number one reason why I included it in the book is because I don't want us to have to be on our deathbed to realize the stuff that's important to us. Like, oh man, it's kind of too late by that point. So I should put it in the book and then maybe people can read it uh, while we're still alive and kicking. Yeah. And and that was that's really what the purpose of the whole book is. In addition to putting these top five regrets of the dying is to become aware of what people who are actually dying regret um, so that we can start thinking, we can learn from them, A, and B, start thinking ahead about what we might regret individually and then live in a way that minimizes that. And so, because I don't want you to have to have four people die like I did in order to have, to realize that you might die tomorrow. I don't want you to have to have you or someone that is close to you co contract a terminal illness in order for you to realize that life is a gift. I want you to be able to do that starting today and have that color the rest of your life and have you live the most vibrant version of John and every person who's listening without having to go through those traumas. Do traumas help wake us up from the sleep state or from the follow society state or the messed up priority state? 
Yes. But I don't think that you have to go through a trauma in order to be touched by this way of living. And so that's why I included the top five regrets of the dying. I got to sit with that. Do you think that, do you, uh, that, because unless my, my one little devil's advocate there is that unless it's born into the culture where we have like an orientation, for example, that, you know, a family that actually talks about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know, <laughs> a family that actually talks about money, you know, a, a culture that actually supports um, making ritual and rite of passage out of these inevitabilities. But so often the, the culture becomes more sanitized, and certainly as we become more materialistic, and I mean that both, you know, literally with from, a, from an economic perspective, but also philosophically, you know, we are, we seek the concrete. And the more we do that, we try to escape the inevitability of, you know, the dark night or all those great euphemisms that you wrote about the ways that we kind of soften, you know, how we talk about death, not just saying it, this person died, they are deceased, and here's how uh, we relate to that. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that other than, oh yeah, I picked it back up. Uh, so you think that, I mean, who knows, we can't, we can't even do that research, but it is not in our culture, in 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 my I should in my culture where I grew up to have something like a death meditation be a practice. You know the you talked about um, certain Christian aspects. You know the Easter Sunday. Um, you know parts of uh, of course that's Catholic. Other aspects that bring even Halloween. Halloween is so freaking distant from a, 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 an appreciation of death. It is a toy store version of what it could be. And we just, we don't want to talk about it. You know, that's a huge problem, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it is because death is a part of life. And again, when we avoid death, we avoid true life because it's totally natural and it's going to be our all, all of our fate. And, and I, I hear what you're saying, which is like, if you didn't grow up in let's say the Hispanic culture with day of the dead, Dia de los Muertos, or you didn't grow up in, you know, Indonesian culture where the whole town comes together for this, you know, celebration of the person's life. Or if you don't have like a cultural practice in your life and all, so much of Western culture is about sanitizing away mortality and um, how is it possible for you to truly have an awakening when it comes to, realizing the inevitability of our mortality and then reaping the benefits that come from that. Yes. Read my book. That's number one. No, <laughs> but seriously, like I, I, before I even started writing the book, I, I created these stickers um, and it's a white sticker with black words on it. And it says, you might die tomorrow. So live today. And for like two years, I would put these stickers up all over the world. And then people started ordering these stickers and they would put them up all over the world. And then I started getting orders from professors who wanted to teach about You Might Die Tomorrow in their classes. And so they would order 200 stickers for their lecture hall. You know, even something as simple as being exposed to an idea of mortality can change your outlook. And I write about this a little bit in the book, which is that if we're only exposed to mortality when it's traumatizing, like when someone close to you dies um, or in like a desensitized way, like we see it on TV, no, it's going to be very difficult to have an awakening when we're processing through 
trauma, unless that eventually hopefully leads to that post-traumatic growth. But if you can be exposed to the idea of mortality in a lower stakes environment where you're seeing a sticker that says you might die tomorrow, or you pass by a cemetery on your drive to work and you happen to start thinking about life and death and being remembered in your legacy, um, again, then you can begin to invite mortality into your everyday life. And that's really what I'm trying to do with this project is to help you invite mortality in a lower stakes environment in in your everyday life so that you don't have to process through trauma in order to have the awakening so that you can start to recognize that death again is that natural part of life and then begin to reap those benefits of perspective, awareness, clarity, mindfulness, presence and enjoying your life while you're still kicking. Amen to that. Well, you have been totally generous. Um, I want to start closing it out, although uh, I don't know. I I think one of the reasons why for me, I, cause you know, you, you had these calls to action in your book, whether it be the you know, the, the, the data, I forget what you call it, but entering in my little, you know, my value system, which is something Mm -hmm. I ask my patients to do all the time. And so I I definitely wanted to do that. And the other piece was your death meditation. And so I sat in my office and I did the death meditation as long as it lasted. And that to me is the the piece that's so important. And for a guy who can really, really do a good job of swimming in the streams of intellectualism to, to actually do the work. And so here I've been asking you about kind of all these kind of intellectual, what do you name it? How do we do it? I mean, I, I noticed that you keep coming back to this one thing, which is do, doing the death meditation, asking yourself these questions, having a practice that takes you all of about four to five minutes every day to just be conscious. I know the Tibetans, there's this whole practice where they, uh, there's a meditation where you um, you sit and meditate on your decaying body. You know, like, where is that shit? You know, like, I, as ironic as you even said this, and I loved that you went there. Uh, like, so one of the primary religions here in the U.S. is, of course, Christianity. And, you know, we're, we're terrified of death, yet a central image of the Christianity is a dead guy on a cross <laughs> yeah. who's yeah. like suffered greatly in this form of torture. And we're like, oh, we don't want to talk about death though. It's so unconscious. And I don't want to be yeah. overly critical because I, I totally get that so much of what we're doing is, um, is managing our death anxiety. But when it's so blatantly in our face all the time, and we also spend time defending from it, 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 it creates a bunch of crazy people. It, it has to. I use that word comically and lovingly. I yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that we do avoid death as a society. We also avoid it personally because it's sort of programmed within us. And, um, but by, by inviting it into your life in small, low stakes ways, man, if I've, I mean, I've heard so many people throughout my years in this work that have said that even just seeing the sticker and now, you know, the book's only been out since March, um, but even just seeing the sticker, the sticker and the brand have been active for years. People write me and say, just seeing your sticker in a coffee shop has completely changed the way I look at life and the way I talk to the people that I love. 
And so you don't have to do a lot. You can, there's a ton of work that you can do personally. You can do the deathbed meditation. You can incorporate the deathbed gut check. You can start to become aware of, you know, mortality in your everyday life. But even just listening to this podcast, you're planting a seed. Mm -hmm. And I want people to remember that, you know, everything that you do that's positive in your life, again, bringing it back to enjoying your life. Like we, we can go down this lens of like, oh, but I want to be the best person and I want to cure cancer and save all the children that are hungry. Like start with yourself and, and enjoying your life. And remembering that life is short and prioritizing your enjoyment and your dreams and your joy, you're creating that positive ripple effect. And not only are you creating that positive ripple effect that will continue to go for generations, you're also just by living your badass, vibrant life, you're thereby minimizing your own fear of death. Because a great fear that we have of dying is sure, we don't know how we're going to die. Is it going to hurt? Is it going to be scary? But a big reason we're afraid of death is because we don't want to get there and not lived. We're afraid of not living by the time that point comes. Well, guess what? Not living or living is 100% within your control. And it all comes down to your outlook and your actions while you're still alive. Yeah, yeah. You and I share I share a common experience. Anytime I'm working on a creative project, as soon as it it's coming close to being finished, I have this like internal voice. It's like, please don't die, just don't die. <laughs> you know, just get this stuff out there. And I think, oh, I like it's like the Viktor Frankl thing. You know, having meaning. Um, oh, which brings me, I definitely want to clarify this before we finish. Uh, would you talk about the difference, uh, or would you would you critique the idea of purpose, having a purpose in life? So what do you mean? Just, you know, what are my thoughts on purpose and yeah, you know, what do we do? <laughs> we, a lot of people, you know, talk about finding their purpose. And I notice in my practice that what it does is create a great deal of anxiety. Because yeah. it's like, I don't have a purpose. Oh, shit, I got to find my purpose. I don't have a purpose, so I must be fucked up, you know? And, and that's, so I just want you to kind of riff on that for a little bit. I mean, I don't know what my purpose is, and I don't think that anybody really knows what the hell we're doing here. And I think those of us that say that we are, are that we know what our true purpose is, like maybe some of us have gotten the, that spirit guide sprinkle and, and really know, but I think most of us are taking a best guess. And so instead of me trying to figure out what my great purpose in life, which feels like this huge, like, oh my gosh, ton of bricks on my back, um, I make my purpose in life enjoying myself. Does that sound selfish? Yes. But am I a greater asset to humanity in my, when I live in my joy and when I live in trying to be love and work on my own spiritual growth and make the world a better place on that micro level? Yes. So if you feel like you know your purpose, uh, great, please do that. You're going to be doing a huge service to humanity. If you like I am are unsure just have fun every single day and enjoy your life. And again, you're going to create that ripple effect that's going to go far and wide. And you're also probably going to be able to be on your deathbed and say, you know what? I don't know what the hell I was doing there, but guess what? I had a great freaking time. Yeah. And that's the meaning inherent in this, that that all of a sudden those little moves, I think meaning's more meaningful huh, than uh, than purpose in the first place. What what threads are we leaving out, Kate? What Anything you have that uh, is kind of standing out? I think, again, enjoying your life is so important. Um, I think that making mindful choices, like 
you know, I had what I referred to as like an awakening or a couple of awakenings that have occurred. You know, the first one was when Dan died and I realized that death can be a great source of aliveness. Uh, the second one was when I was in Tahiti and realized that I can do whatever I want with my life and it's up to me to actually do that. The third one occurred this past January when I realized that I was, you know, preaching and trying to be an example of living every moment alive. Um, but I was drinking wine five out of seven nights a week. Mm -hmm. And so uh, my choice to be sober um, starting in this this past January uh, with really no end in sight has um, really helped me come alive. But regardless of whether whatever your version of aliveness is, the thing that has been the best asset to me is stopping to ask myself why and stopping to ask myself, what would Kate on her deathbed want? And Kate on her deathbed would have wanted to travel. Is Does Kate today, five years later, does she really want to travel? No, partially because I did it and partially because I'm a little bit older and my priorities are different. And so pause Remember that the pace of our life comes from ourselves. Don't let the external pace of the world set your internal pace. The peace that you want to feel in your life and the everyday joy has to come from the inside out. And so make your decisions, you know, in that deathbed lens or at least try to second guess what society has has us thinking that we should do because at the end of the day, you want to make the decisions and you want to have lived your life like the top five deathbed regrets according to your personal priorities, as opposed to what your parents think or what the Joneses think. And so just slow the heck down, enjoy your life and do your best. And I think if you do those three things, you're probably going to be pretty stoked with the way that you lived. <laughs> oh, I'm stoked. You're an inspiration, Kate. Thank you. Oh, thank you, John. It's been a pleasure to be here to get to know you, you um, personally and professionally. And, you know, talking about the sacred speaks, you know, everyday life, I would just like, what, what do you find sacred in your life? Mm -hmm. What are those little moments? And that's, that's what it's made out of. The, uh, the website initially was finding the sacred in the everyday. And yes. yeah, and I, I, I still own that. So yeah, <laughs> I bought that sucker. Um, Kate, yes, this is, uh, it's, it's truly like your, your book really takes a dive into r religious and, um, and of course, spirituality and psychology, uh, but it doesn't have the kind of, it's not housed in a tradition, which I really appreciate. It, it does the good job of saying that, um, these, these, um, essences of life exist, uh, anywhere. And sometimes uh, they are very outside of the church or outside of the institutionalized space. So trying to find it wherever you can find it, I think is one of the greatest messages I've heard in a while. Thanks. That blade of grass, that cloud in the sky, the laugh of your lover, that's the stuff life's made out of. Amen. Sacred Speaks. <laughs> Thanks, Kate. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. John. Oh